Hi, I'm Dan Webster, film critic for Spokane Public Radio and blogger for Spokesman.com. And I'm Mary Pat Truthart, part-time film critic, full-time law professor at Gonzaga University School of Law. And I'm Nathan Weinbender, also a film critic for Spokane Public Radio. And welcome to Movies 101, that show that would, if it had its way, dress Nathan up as a movie critic version of Ken and pair that with Mary Pat's version of Barbie just so this coming Halloween they could snatch as much candy as possible from our respective Spokane neighborhoods. Dan, you'll always be my Ken. <laughs> uh, imagine the possibilities. In any event, Halloween seems to be on our docket this week as we contemplate two versions of horror, one being an obvious example, the release of the film The Exorcist Believer. The other, though, is a whole other kind of horror, this one having to do with a blend of business ambition and the power balance struggle between a pair of New York investment analysts. Let's begin with a film that is the latest, the sixth, in a franchise that dates back to December 26, 1973. That was when William Friedkin's adaptation of William Peter Blatty's novel The Exorcist burst onto America's movie screens, and it was hard to figure out what was scarier, the movie itself or the news reports of people exiting theaters while vomiting. I personally never saw anyone getting sick, but I do recall hearing the gasps and moans of moviegoers as Friedkin's film played out. Six films later, the franchise is still going, what, with a seventh, tentatively titled The Exorcist Deceiver, scheduled to be released in April. The sixth, playing in theaters now, is titled The Exorcist Believer, and it attempts to link itself to the others, and particularly the original, by casting both Ellen Burstyn, now 90 years old, and, very briefly, Linda Blair in supporting roles. Mostly, though, Believer goes off in its own direction, beginning with a Haitian voodoo prologue and then continuing with the story of two young girls, played by Lydia Jewett and Olivia Markham, who disappear for three days, scaring their parents, played respectively by Leslie Odoms Jr. and Jennifer Nettles and Norbert Leo Butts, and leading them, ultimately if not sensibly, to agree to approve of an exorcism ritual because it becomes pretty apparent that the girls have somehow become possessed. It's all pretty silly, and not nearly as scary as you might imagine, despite the presence of the actress Anne Dowd as a former novitiate, which is enough to frighten anyone. One positive note, no one vomited at the screening that Mary Pat and I attended, at least not that we noticed. I'll push back a little bit on the idea that this is the sixth Exorcist movie, because technically you have Dominion prequel to The Exorcist, which I think is what you're counting as the fifth, which is sort of a re- editing of Exorcist the Beginning, or rather Exorcist the Beginning is a re-editing of Dominion prequel to The Exorcist, because I, the only reason I bring it up is because I'd rather talk about anything than Exorcist the Believer, or The Exorcist Believer, because now I think we can officially say that Exorcist to the Heretic is no longer the worst Exorcist sequel, because that movie, while terrible, is at least It was terrible. a mess, but it was funny. Wow, but it's terrible in a fascinating way. It has a zeal to its madness, because it was directed by John Borman, and this movie just is dull and flat. David Gordon and Green isn't that the, the completely uninteresting? And David Gordon Green got the keys to this new Exorcist franchise because he had success, at least financial success, with the new Halloween reboot franchise that he directed. And those movies have some interesting ideas in them that don't always pay off. The problem here is that I don't think there are any interesting ideas in The Exorcist Believer from the beginning, and. The original film, which is now 50 years old, isn't ultimately about possession or even really about religion. It's about faith and the complications of faith and what it means to believe in something. And it's about sacrifice. 
and it doesn't spell those themes out letter by letter very slowly for the audience. It sort of lets us figure that out. This movie does all of those things. It just whacks us over the head with all of its themes. And it follows the same structure as the original. It begins with this, you know, odd prologue in Haiti, just like the original film began in northern Iraq. Then you have the single parent with the adolescent girl and you sort of follow their mundane daily family life. Then you have the possession. Then you have those hospital scenes. Then you bring in the old timer. It was Max von Sydow in the original. (laughs) Now you have Ellen Burstyn coming back as Chris McNeil. And then the skeptical parent finally comes around and decides, okay, we need to do this exorcism thing. And then finally you have the exorcism itself. The difference here is that there's two little girls instead of just one. So we get, you know, twice the bang for our buck, I suppose. What they do with Ellen Burstyn in this movie, I think, is frankly unforgivable and stupid. It doesn't really make any sense with the character that we were introduced to in the original Exorcist. And yeah, as Exorcist believer sort of careened, well, very slowly careened towards the big exorcism at the end, I just kind of sat there with my hands on my face going, what are they doing? Because it becomes this weirdly almost faux inspirational film about togetherness and, you know, all religions sort of have the same central tenet. And what if they all banded together? And I just wasn't having any of it. And I don't know if it's because I'm such a fan of the original Exorcist, which I think we can talk about a little bit, but I just, I don't understand what they were going for with this movie. None of the characters have any spark of life to them or seem believable. Leslie Odom Jr. looks like he's been hypnotized because he's so uninterested in anything that's happening. I just, there's no immediacy of this. There's nothing scary about it. I really, really hated this. I thought it sucked. Um, So there you go. (laughs) Well, to say I hated it would be too strong, but you are correct that we are left asking the question, why the exorcist believer? So there are all these sort of disparate people who show up here and there, inhabiting different roles and so forth. I agree with you totally about Leslie Odom Jr., as Dan can attest to. I mean, the camera likes him. Mm -hmm. I mean, but when you think of how empowered he was in Hamilton, for example, this is not this guy. And here he has this beautiful voice. And so why, why is he in this movie? And he's playing this character who's, you know, something of a skeptic. And we think that's going to play into the narrative in a significant way. But it doesn't really not... at least not in any kind of challenging or novel way. Right. And I thought that the girls, you know, did what they were supposed to do. Mm-hmm. But again, it was too repetitious of the original film. And yet then they try to bring in, like you were talking about, the sort of multi-faith diversity approach. And that fell way flat. You know, yeah, and it doesn't work. One of the things that really bothered me was, and I think you've touched on this, Nathan, is that at every moment, a character seems to come out and is going to make a difference in what the film is. And Dowd is a perfect example. I mean, why is she in this movie? And then right when it looks like she's going to take charge, you know, they, they pull the rug right out from underneath her. And the same with the Ellen Burstyn character. And it's like, why was she even in this movie? Was it simply to have the Oscar winner and the link back to the original? Yes. And also both Anne Dowd and Ellen Burstyn, 
give these long speeches, again, underlying all of the themes of the film that we already got because we've had 50 years mm-hmm. of exorcists mm-hmm. and exorcism-related movies. And by the way, also done entirely off screen, so they must have recorded those after the think? fact or yeah. something. It's really clunky and awkward. And I mean, Ellen Burstyn, one of the greatest actresses, and in the original Exorcist, one of the great performances, I think, Terrific in contemporary cinema. Yeah. I don't want to say what happens to her in this movie, but let's just say she at least got off easy. Most of the time she's sitting or laying down. So yeah. um, I'm sure that was probably a stipulation in her contract. But yeah. I just think it's so disrespectful there to was, the character. W- there was one moment that I really appreciated the Exorcist believer, and that was when a character who, uh, let's just say he's wearing a collar, Gets treated the same way Samuel L. Jackson got treated in the Deep Blue Sea. <laughs> I did get sort of a, a horror kind of laugh out of that. I, can we go back and talk about the original Exorcist instead? Because oh, yes. I would rather talk about that instead unless you want to throw in something. In Your there. mother eats cod in hell. <laughs> oh, that's well, exactly yeah. what she said. Yeah, that's a paraphrase, idea. but yes. Uh, I went back and watched the first Exorcist just last night. I've seen it many, many times, but... The thing that hit me this time is just the psychic pain in that movie is so overwhelming and almost overbearing. These characters, you can just see the anguish on their face. Jason Miller, one of the great faces in Mm -hmm. horror, you can just see the pain and agony and the lines on his face. And we remember the blasphemous dialogue that you just so expertly (laughs) paraphrased there and the shocking imagery of Linda Blair, you know, going through the paces in that movie. But what sticks with me about the original Exorcist is that it has these themes of the complexity of faith and what is happening in front of these people's eyes that they can't explain. I don't know. There's something really profound about that movie that I think this completely wastes. And it was really landmark in many ways because, I mean, you probably can't appreciate this fully because it was 50 years ago. But, I mean, I think for mainstream audiences to have a horror film that also had a message, it was almost like when the porn industry was finally compelled to tell a story in order to (laughs) continue in the business. So this was really the first time that brought all of these things together for a mainstream audience, the horror, the religious message, Mm -hmm. the great acting performances and so forth. So it stands alone. It stands alone. By any context, it is a great film. And we should just say, rest in peace, William Friedkin. Yes, exactly. Uh, It's a great film. Just watch that instead. Right. And that was our discussion of The Exorcist Believer. This is Movies 101, and it's time to take a short break. Before we go, remember that you can access podcasts of Movies 101 by going online at spokanepublicradio.org. While there, check out the individual reviews that Nathan and I write. Don't do it now, though, because we'll be right back to discuss Fair Play, which is screening both at the Magic Lantern Theater and on Netflix. You're listening to Movies 101 on Spokane Public Radio. Subscribe to your favorite public radio programs when you become a Spokane Public Radio sustainer, just like any news or entertainment service you use. But unlike those other services, you decide how much you want to pay. Set up an electronic fund transfer, and monthly installments will be withdrawn automatically from your account. Plus, you can start or stop your subscription at any time you want. As a sustainer, you help make your public radio station strong, and you never have to wonder when to renew. You're part of the community that sustains public radio. Phone 509-328-5729 during business hours or go online to spokanepublicradio.org. Click the red Donate button and start the process. 
Working together, we make our community a better place to work, play, and listen. And we're back. This is Movies 101, and I'm your host, Dan Webster. During the first half of the show, Mary Pat Truthart, Nathan Weinbinder, and I discussed the latest in the Exorcist horror franchise, The Exorcist Believer. Let's now turn to a different kind of horror, the kind that occurs when love and ambition collide. Written and directed by first-time feature filmmaker Chloe DeMont, Fair Play takes us into the intense world of high-stakes investing. We've been here before, from 2011's Margin Call to 2015's The Big Short, not to mention Oliver Stern's 1987 Greed is Good Study Wall Street. But DeMont has something different in mind. Instead of focusing on the business side of the equation, she concentrates on a couple, both analysts for a big-time cutthroat Manhattan hedge fund, who are against company policy living together. And everything starts out great, with the two pledging their mutual love and promise to marry, even as they both strive to advance into the higher levels of the company hierarchy. DeMont does a decent job of capturing what such a form might be like, particularly the take-no-prisoners intensity of a culture groomed by the head man, played by the English actor Eddie Marsden. And two, she manages to track the relationship of our two protagonists, played by Phoebe Denevar of Bridgerton fame and Star Wars alumnus Alden Ehrenreich, in a believable manner. If only there were someone to root for, a woman striving to succeed in a hostile male-dominated world, perhaps? instead of this collection of conniving, manipulative, and gleefully vengeful money grubbers. There is so much in this film that felt authentic, and then so much that felt inauthentic at the same time. So it's hard for me to discuss fair play fairly, I think, because of that sort of contrast. I will give a shout-out right away to Phoebe Dynavar of Bridgerton fame, as you pointed out, because I was not sure that she had the talent to move to the big screen because she sort of had this one-note character in Bridgerton, I burn for you. Um, (laughs) But at any rate, I thought she acquitted herself nicely here. And then Alden Ehrenreich also does a good job because we see him smolder over the course of this particular, I guess, event. And I think that their work situation, I have no idea if anything they were saying about hedge funds and <laughs> stock uh, and shorting Jargon, this and so, jargon, Right, jargon. right. It was totally I, jargon. I read a review from the Bloomberg critic, and she said it was all baloney, that it didn't make any sense whatsoever. So. Yeah. Which might be a commentary unto itself. Yeah, I don't right. Know. I mean, that could have but, been purposeful. But that's right. not the point. Right. right. The you point know, so. of the movie is the tension between this couple and their relationship at work is on the down low because they do work together. And I think that things start to go sideways when they assume that he is going to get this promotion that's up for grabs. And she hears a rumor to that effect and so forth. So they're almost celebrating that event prematurely. And then it turns out, lo and behold, she gets the promotion unexpectedly. And so we start to see how her course of dealing with people in the firm changes. I mean, she's now expected to go out and do shots at various bars with the upper management. 
while her husband-to-be sits at home, like, wondering, watching, waiting, etc. And looking at, at uh, videos about how to take charge of your life. Right. You he know. gets involved in some almost cult-like, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, executive programming thing. Looks like a pyramid scheme almost. Right. Yeah, yeah. And then we also find out that maybe – and we never know for sure because, again, the – financial aspect of this escaped me. But it looked as though he might have been a risk taker whose risks did not pay off. And so therefore, he was actually not among the favored personnel at this particular firm. But things just start to like really spiral out in terms of their relationship. And then it ends up at a point where, I mean, on the one hand, you could say this showed some empowerment on her part because she was just not going to walk away from the relationship without resolving a few things. But at the same time, that just did not work for me, the way that it kind of played out. Yeah. Fair play is not so much provocative as it is sort of gesturing in the direction of provocation. I sort of saw what this filmmaker... Chloe Dumont was doing, I just think that it kind of veers into heavy-handed territory at a certain point. And I think you're either going to go with it and maybe see it as some kind of histrionic satire, or like I think it sounds like both of us did, is kind of watch it go, yeah, what's wrong with these people and why am I still following them? How did you get together in the first place? I mean, And to go back to something you said, Dan, that idea of, you know, there's nobody here to root for, there's no one to like. I don't have a problem with that in most things. Most of my favorite movies are just a collection of- The worst person in the world. Yeah, of terrible people. But I did think that the dynamics here were interesting, not just the dynamics within the office, because we've seen those before Mm -hmm. and, and we can expect that all of the men are boors and she's, you know, kind of the secret genius that then has to act to their boorishness at a certain point. And also, I sort of grimaced when you talked about her taking shots because the amount of alcohol consumed in this movie is staggering. Mm-hmm. And and I think probably not all that outlandish. I think it well, probably they, they does go this way. They basically didn't have much of a personal life. I mean, everything was focused it's on It's true, work. but they're also in the office from like 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. And you think like, at what point are they just in the bathroom like, mm-hmm. throwing up all the time? But, you know, the dynamics within this relationship, I think, are kind of fascinating because at first we're thinking, well, we can understand why he might be feeling this jealousy because certainly we've all been in that situation where it's not so much that, oh, my girlfriend has gone past me in this contest for upward mobility. It's that he was set on this job and didn't get it. Mm -hmm. But then it becomes not that anymore in ways that become increasingly disturbing. And I think in ways that I don't know if the movie totally pulls off because it it gets very ugly at a certain point. And that goes to that kind of provocation I was talking about. It felt like a stepchild of, you know, the sort of Paul Verhoeven, Joe Esterhaas kind of 80s and 90s Reagan era kind of social satires. there's also a class thing going on here to some extent because we get the impression that he came from a well-off family and she did not. And then the boss, played by Eddie Marson, Who's a Brit, right? Yes. Um, I mean, as he is has Phoebe Dunnevar. I know he has this New York accent that made me laugh, actually. But you can tell that he did not come from the upper crust either, and so maybe that's one he, of the reasons why he was bonded to right. her character. Although we, you we know, talk, we talk about how woman. intense this movie becomes, but it becomes intense in a way that is dramatic and movie-oriented. Much of the personal relationship between these two people. Feels real, feels authentic, Mm -hmm. but then what happens in the workplace 
goes totally off. You know, I mean, you don't burst into a meeting of senior managers drunk without a tie and, you know, just throw yourself. That does not happen in real life. And also, even if it did, it's not really consistent with what we know about these characters. Right. right? It feels like a screenplay device as opposed Exa- to that's, that's exactly logically how that character say. would be. Yes. Well, now, supposedly Netflix paid $20 million for this film after it debuted at Sundance. Mm. So what do you think was appealing to them about fair play that would have prompted that outlay of cash? If I could tell you the logic behind some of Netflix's spending, I would be working in the firm that the characters in this movie work in. Because I don't know if it's done numbers. Maybe they thought that it kind of had sort of a scintillating premise, maybe because of the Bridgerton connection, because that's a Netflix show. Maybe that had something to do with it. Also a woman director, right? It's her first And it got a lot of buzz out of Sundance. And there's also that bidding war thing that happens out of Sundance that I don't understand anymore. It has a life of its own. And I think that one of the problems here, too, is of course you get the impression that it's taking place in New York because yeah. that is the financial Although, capital where of was the it world. Filmed? In Serbia. In Serbia. And there are sometimes, yes. right, and so I think sometimes <laughs> eh, it didn't quite pull off well, you the know, New York thing. They should have gone to Toronto at least. I mean, they're mostly in these kind of glass and chrome yeah. skyscraper type buildings. I also want to end because I'm sort of on the fence about this movie more yeah, towards, I am too. More no, towards no. negative than positive, but yeah. I really did like these Central 2 performances yes, because yes, they're yes. going for it. I mean, Aaron Reich, I'm glad to see him being given a role that he can tear into because since Hail Caesar, he's kind of been up and down. And Phoebe Dynavor, who I did not watch Bridgerton, so I've never seen her before. And she reminded me of a young Nicole Kidman. She sounds just like her because she's kind of suppressing that accent. And I thought she really commands the screen. And when the two of them are together, even if you don't totally believe it, you can't look away from them because they are magnetic performers. So I will give them that. I totally agree. I, I think that the performances are really good. The only thing I wanted to say about unlikable characters is even unlikable characters can have a sympathetic side. You can sympathize with their situation, or, not or in not this even, movie. Not even sympathize with them, understand their yes, situation exactly. or empathize yeah. with it in some way. This is a little harder to yeah. do that. And that was our discussion of fair play. And this is Movies 101. I'm Dan Webster. And early in the show, Nathan Weinbinder, Murray, Pat Truthart, and I discussed The Exorcist Believer. Let's take this moment to thank Jim Tevenin for both producing and engineering the show. And we thank you to our loyal listeners. We invite you back next week, same time, same spot on the radio dial. When we'll again check out all the best that cinema has to offer wherever we can find it. Until then, consider these words from the late writer Mignon McLaughlin. We're all born brave, trusting, and greedy. And most of us remain greedy. You're listening to Movies on a One on Spokane Public Radio. The Movies 101 podcast is made possible by the members of Spokane Public Radio. Become a member at spokanepublicradio.org. Thanks for listening to Movies 101.